Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, it's been a bland week for contemporary news. As you'll be able to tell in the panel, everything Trump was the most interesting thing that we thought was happening. But it's been a monumental week for news about world history. The 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings that saved the world from Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, and the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre in China, the one that snuffed out the country's fledgling democracy movement, and meaning that China's massive growth phase and integration into world systems happened under the direction of the Communist Party. In this week's feature interview, we bring you a man from Beijing, but perhaps not the one you're expecting. It's Danny Alexander, the former UK cabinet minister who is now one of the vice presidents at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. We spoke on the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, but as a banker managing 97 different member country interests and demands, Alexander definitely didn't want to talk about political hot potatoes. But it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. In the panel, we talk Trump's Europe visit, the Danish election, and the slow-burning conundrum that is the EU top job challenge. Let's hear from Danny Alexander. Joining us now on the podcast is Danny Alexander, or I should possibly say Sir Danny, but there's... Danny is fine. Bit of the Australian in me that's allergic to titles still, I have to say. Uh, now, Danny, you're now Vice President of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and before that, you were a Cabinet Minister in the UK from the Liberal Democrat Party, and they've just done very well in the EU elections and also topped an opinion poll, I think, this week. So, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. You're welcome. And I thought we'll start on all the banking side of things and then maybe swivel around and do a bit more of the general politics at the end. To give everyone a little bit of context, the bank that you're now with, that was set up in 2014, it's got 70 member countries, including 17 from the EU. And it was started with 100 billion capital from the get-go, which makes it pretty big, you know, half the size of the World Bank. The reason why I was very interested to talk to you is that ever since I turned up in Brussels 11 years ago, I've been saying... Europeans don't think enough about Asia. They don't look enough towards Asia. And I think it's sort of slowly changing. Um, but I wanted you to give us a bit of perspective about how far Europe is coming along that road and, and what brings you to town today. 
Uh, we actually started work in January 2016. Mm-hmm. Before that, there were some negotiations to found it. And it's a multilateral development bank, so like the World Bank or the EBRD or the European Investment Bank, where countries are coming together for a common purpose in a rules-based institution to try and, in our case, help to finance infrastructure that supports the sustainable economic development of Asia. There's been a very strong European commitment to the AIB. So many European countries are among the founding members of the bank, and some have joined since. For example, Germany, France, UK, Italy, Belgium is a new member, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Spain, Portugal, um, and a number of other European countries. Most of the Scandinavian countries, for example, were also yeah. kind of founding members of the bank. And definitely so, all of the big ones, I noticed. That's quite important. Too. Right. So we're here today because... The AIB annual meeting, which is mm-hmm. when our board of governors, that's the ministers of finance from our member countries, come together, is being held in July for the first time in Europe. It's being hosted mm-hmm. by Luxembourg. And so on the 12th and 13th of July, the ministers from all of our member countries will arrive in Luxembourg. They will have their own meetings to take some decisions about the direction of the bank, but also there'll be a big program of seminars, discussions, and opportunities for Europeans to engage with the AIB. And I think that this annual meeting is a very important part of kind of reporting back to Europe after four years of the bank's operation nearly, we're in our fourth year now, um, about how we're getting on. When I was a cabinet minister in the UK, uh, the UK joining the AIB was one of the, if you like, one of the last important decisions that the coalition government made before the election in, in 2015. George Osborne and I were the two who kind of pushed that through, if you like. And so I hope that listeners to this uh, podcast might come along to Luxembourg to join the annual meeting. They have to register in advance. So go to the AIB website and you can register. It's all project finance. Mm -hmm. So we finance infrastructure projects. So, uh, so far we have financed, I think, 40 projects in 16 different countries, a little over $8 billion of projects. And those cover a wide range of things. But the main sectors would be firstly sustainable infrastructure. You know, so our bank was created just a few weeks after the Paris Agreement was signed, Mm -hmm. not long after the sustainable development goals were agreed. And so renewable energy projects like solar power in Egypt, like refurbishing hydro dams in Tajikistan and Pakistan, but also urban light rail, for example. So we're co-financing with the EIB, actually, Mm -hmm. the Bangalore metro project in India. And so, you know, those kind of things are very important to us. Secondly, connectivity projects, so roads, railways, ports, airports, that kind of thing. And then thirdly, mobilizing private sector capital, because with the best will in the world, the need for infrastructure in Asia is so huge Mm -hmm. that all the finance from multilaterals like us and, you know, from governments is not sufficient. And so projects that sit within those goals, we can potentially finance. We can finance both public sector projects, in other words, government financing and also private sector. And so in a European context, if there are you know, European banks or European companies who are leading the preparation of infrastructure projects in Asia, or indeed beyond, then you know, we potentially can help to finance those projects. And it's interesting you're doing some joint projects with the EIB, because I don't know if I interpreted it correctly, but I sort of guess that the EU thinks, well, we've got our own investment bank, we don't need to sign up as a set of institutions to the Asian counterpart. But I imagine at some point that you do want to work together or you would like the EU to sign up eventually and that this is all sort of helping to find alignment. Well, the EU as an institution can't join the AIB because the membership is open to members of the World Bank or the ADB. That's basically countries. But the beauty of the multilateral model, which we're very much part of, is that 
it enables partnership. You know, we all operate to similar standards. We have high standards of governance. Mm -hmm. We have the same kind of environmental and social and procurement protections for the projects that we finance. And look, some of these projects are so huge that actually to share the risks, it makes sense for more than one institution to finance uh, together. And why Luxembourg? Was it that Luxembourg really wanted to be in on the action and they bid to have this meeting or you thought it made sense because they're a financial centre? Luxembourg really wanted to have us, um, which we're delighted about. Um, (laughs) You know, Luxembourg is a significant financial centre. Also, Luxembourg was actually the first EU country to sign up to join the AIB. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain symmetry in coming to Luxembourg for our first annual meeting in Europe. And they've got great facilities, you know, they're very experienced hosting European council meetings and so yeah. forth. So, you know, the facilities are good, works pretty well. Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting that you've been invited to be involved in the bank. I'd be really surprised if the European Investment Bank invited a Chinese citizen to be a vice president, for example. So I think it speaks to the openness of your organisation that that is happening. Is that sort of part of a signal to say, don't feel threatened by us? Because I know some people thought that, you know, this is a vehicle for the rise of China and that they're concerned in that sort of strategic rivalry sense about the bank. But, you know, the indications are that it's operating to all the governance standards that you're talking about. I mean, if I may say so, I think that the question reveals some of the perhaps misconceptions that existed about the AIB when it was first set up, because you would expect multilateral institutions to be led by people from the member countries of those institutions. So you're right, of course, the EIB, you find people from all of the EU countries are involved in running it. In the case of the AIB, the UK is a, a member country, one of many. And among our leadership team, we have a very international group. So Jin Li Chun is a very impressive Chinese president of the bank. Mm-hmm. And then we have five vice presidents. In addition to myself, I have a French colleague, a German colleague, mm-hmm. an Indian colleague, and an Indonesian colleague. Mm-hmm. So it really is a very international team. And then from our, across our staff, we have, I think, 44 different nationalities now working in the bank. Thinking about sort of the international political perspective, we are in the midst of a lot of heavy debate around things like a trade war. Sure. You know, people are coming up with more ideas like screening and foreign investment, you know, not the globalization we knew from the past 25 years. How does that affect the operating of the bank? Is that something where you have to change your risk profile and your priorities according to sort of these choppy political seas around you? Or is it something where you act as if, no, hang on, we're the ballast and the stabilizing force here. Let's just let the politicians be political and we're just going to keep doing everything we had always intended to do. I think there's two things to say. One is about the economics and one is about the importance of multilateral institutions Mm. to try and solve common problems in this world. On the first, we published our first Asian infrastructure finance report in January this year and we looked at what are the conditions in the, I think, the eight major infrastructure markets in Asia. And what we found was that the climate for private sector investment in infrastructure in those countries had tightened, you know, that there'd been a downturn in private sector investment, which is attributable to some of the geopolitical tensions, Mm -hmm. including trade tensions that are going on right now. If you like, that further enhances the case for multilaterals like the AIB to get involved, because we invest for the long term. We have the capacity to look through short-term problems, to invest counter-cyclically, and to support countries when there are more difficult periods, all dependent on there being good projects that meet our standards. I think the other part of it is, I certainly believe very strongly that multilateralism, countries coming together through common frameworks of rules with institutions behind them, is the best way to try and solve common global problems. And you're right that 
you know, in recent years, we've seen that model under challenge and under threat in, in some ways. I think the AIB is quite a good sort of counterexample to that general trend, because actually we've created a new multilateral institution mm. that operates in the way that you expect, that has some different sources of leadership involved from Asia as well as from Europe, mm -hmm. as in the past. It is also a good insurance policy. Now, when you describe it like that, if you were a politician or a government, if you were someone who was saying, I'm worried about putting all my eggs in the basket just with China and their massive investment programs around the world, to do it via a multilateral bank is sort of a better way of spreading your bets, basically, because then you can get the capital you need without kind of leaving yourself exposed, I guess, is what I'm trying well, to say. Well, look, it makes a lot of sense for countries to borrow from multilateral institutions. That's why the model has been developed. It's why it's been quite successful in some places, because as a member of the AIB, you know, you have an important role in setting the rules, in agreeing the policies, in shaping the standards by which we operate. I mean, it was, in a sense, back in 2015 when we were deciding for the UK to join, a big part of our argument was to say that by getting involved at the start we can help to ensure that this institution operates in a way that we believe is right, that we feel comfortable with, yeah. that's in keeping with, uh, with, with the multilateral system. And I think that, that judgment's been borne out. Yeah. Now, maybe it's a good time to switch to a bit more general political discussion doing the good Google stalking that any podcast interviewer should do before their guest <laughs> comes in. I was reminded that you actually did a lot of communications work around the EU for really the first sort of eight years of your career, I think, even, for two different... Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did the same. I did the same. So haven't run a multi-billion dollar bank, haven't been a cabinet minister, have done communicating around the EU. So we got that in common. But I was wondering, what's your perspective now when you look at... You don't have to tell me the, the ins and outs of your Brexit views. I know you'd not be allowed to do that in your current role. But it's, it's quite a scene to survey from a distance how all of this is unfolding and then you go into all those questions around global Britain. I mm. mean, effectively taking the UK into the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank the way you have, that was like a precursor to Global Britain, and now you've got this whole other version of Global Britain, let's say. What's your take on, on, on that scene? I'd be fascinated. Um, I mean, look, I'm not going to get into commenting on the whys and wherefores and ins and outs of the current Brexit debate. That's not my job anymore. But I'd say that, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for the UK and for other European countries in Asia's development. I mean, it's very interesting now looking back to Europe and looking back yeah. to the UK from Beijing. You know, Asia is growing. You've got a real sense of, you know, economic dynamism in many countries. So those kind of opportunities, they don't just exist for the UK, they exist for many European countries. And it, I think that the dilemma for many of, of, of those places is how do you best take those opportunities? Yeah. Now, look, I, come, I was a Liberal Democrat politician previously. I suspect my views on Brexit are easier to un infer from that fact. <laughs> but it doesn't require you to leave the EU or to be in the EU to take those opportunities. It does require you to spend time trying to understand how other parts of the world work, how Asia's economy is really developing, and to have a modern understanding of that. And I think that, you know, perhaps there is a real need in many parts of the developed world to update our understanding of what's going on in Asia, because I think some of the ideas are quite old-fashioned. And I think that the partnership that exists within the AIB is actually a great way to do that, because, you know, n not just leaders, but officials and businesses and so on have a great chance to understand each other, to see what's really happening, to find out about projects, to get involved in those projects. 
I think it's another reason why, if I may say so, you and your colleagues should come to Luxembourg on the 12th and 13th of July. And so, uh, you used to represent Inverness and Nan in that's right, Scotland. I did. I was very proud to do so. Favorite parts of my life. My best ever Christmas in a place called Loch Glass. Favorite memories from your time as MP up there. Is there anything you're missing from that former part of your career? I think the wonderful thing about the way the British system works is that. You know, anyone who's in Parliament, be you a cabinet minister mm-hmm. or a backbencher, you know, part of your role is to really get to know your constituency, mm-hmm. to take up issues on, on their behalf, to get to know the people. And I have many fond memories of canvassing or having surgeries in places, you know, in villages around that constituency, which is one of the most beautiful Danny's places in the world. not actually a doctor. Surgery is a British phrase Aye. for surgery, surgery, hanging out with your constituents. Surgery means um, anyone can drop in and see you, <laughs> yeah. and you can't solve medical problems, but sometimes you can help people. You know, and I look back, and there are things that I was able to do for, for local businesses, for mm. people who were, you know, down on their luck in different ways, where actually the intervention of an MP can really help. And in a sense... For all the other things I got involved in, I still look back on that kind of activity the most proudly. Excellent. Danny Alexander, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. That was Danny Alexander from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So now it is time for the podcast panel, but it's a very lonely panel today. It's just me and Alva Finn. Hey, Alva. We're riding solo. We <laughs> we got to make this good. We're going to make this work for you folks. Uh, and who better to help us on the road than Donald Trump in a multi-layered visit to Britain and Ireland? I mean, I don't want to say that I love the guy, but he certainly amuses me. He definitely shakes things up. It is funny to watch some of the things he causes, some of the things he does. Alva, what are your highlights on the trip so far? I think pre-trip, my highlight was that he attacked a member of the royal family, which is definitely a protocol no-no. He called Meghan Markle nasty. I I want to... Slightly disagree. I think he You was, can't call a, like, a princess but he that. He didn't do that. The, the, someone was reading out to him her comments on Twitter in 2016. And he was basically saying, oh, I didn't realize she was nasty in the sense of that she said something nasty. So I actually believe his explanation of that afterwards. Okay. And I think everyone wants to believe that Donald Trump says ridiculous things. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to give that one to him, honestly. Okay. But well, what do you think he thought of the penis that was mown into the lawn near the airport where he was landing in London? Do you know, he's a bit infantile, so maybe he would have liked that. I'd say he would have been one of those guys who just drew penises on everybody's books when he was in school, no? You don't like that? <laughs> I do think that, yeah. The thing that annoyed me about that, right, was that a lot of the media didn't cover the others. Like, they just showed the big phallic drawing and then they didn't show what it said beside it which was climate change is real so i wish i had no idea about that uh, yeah exactly so i think sometimes we need to yeah look at how we're reporting things and really post it as it is rather than just taking the most shocking part of it but yeah so it it had a big penis and then it said oi trump and then beside it in another field it said climate change is real Mm mm-hmm now, I, I don't want to sound like I'm being a Trump fanboy, but there was another moment where I thought, oh, I roll, which was in his press conference with Theresa May, uh, where it was like probably the final press conference she'll do as a prime minister. And they started being asked about a, an EU-US trade deal. And in my opinion, he very stupidly talked about the National Health Service being on oh, the God, table yeah. and going into it. At the same time, I mean, that's what any smart negotiator would do from the US side, because... 
the NHS is a, a huge system. It is obvious that they don't make every piece of equipment in Britain anyway. Like, there's already a bunch of imports that sustain the NHS. And it's this sacred cow that you're basically banned from talking about changing in the UK because it must mean you want to destroy it and privatise it and da-da-da. So I think he made a mistake to mention it. But then, of course... I'm just like, oh, get over yourselves, Britain. In a way, it is a little bit clever because you're already saying, like, we're going we're gonna to be hardballing you and prepare yourselves because, you know, we want elements of your healthcare system to be open to U.S. companies. That's... Well, he wrote about three years of headlines in the negotiations now. So, you know, you can basically kiss that one goodbye into the, the long distance now. What do you think of people who wanted to sort of not offer the state visit to either ban him or kind of relegate him to some kind of side role down at the D-Day ceremonies. Yeah, so this is, I think maybe it has been a conversation in Britain, but even more so in Ireland where people are more left-leaning now. Yeah, I think even people have said, oh, our um, prime minister shouldn't go and visit on St. Patrick's Day. But actually, I think a few times... um, where Trump has been faced with a prime minister of Ireland, they've actually played it very well. So recently, Leo Varadkar went to visit Pence and he took his partner because he's gay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they can be learning opportunities. Yeah, and Ender Kenny made a real point about yes, immigration. He, he and did. everyone noted that very strongly when he did that. Yeah, that was a viral moment for Ender mm-hmm. Kenny. So I think they can be teaching moments. So I don't really believe this whole thing that you shouldn't, you shouldn't invite a U.S. president or go and visit a U.S. president if he's, you know, right And what about Prince Charles? You know, he's someone who I think probably pushes the boat out when it comes to political interference. He's been a very controversial Mm. figure, basically trying to tell ministers what to do on a range of topics for decades. But I can think of a few other people that could force Donald Trump to listen to arguments about climate change for 90 minutes. You Mm. know, he's going to be the next king of Britain. And Donald Trump, had better sit there and listen. And that's what happened. And it doesn't mean Donald Trump is suddenly going to become some green Paris Climate Agreement activist. But at the very least, he had to suck it up for 90 minutes and listen to those arguments. Yeah, that's true. So I think in general, I think it's a good thing. And also, and just what we were talking about the protests and, and things like that, that occur in his wake, I think they can also be very good moments, you know, they can be good moments for activists, they can draw attention to to certain issues. So for me, that's never been something that I've encouraged. I think it's better if we continue to talk. And, you know, he's not he's known to change his mind on things. He's not immovable. So, yeah, maybe Prince Charles, uh, the great environmentalist that he is, has has changed his mind on something. Uh Now my brain is like spiraling off in all these other directions, because just before we pressed record, you were mentioning that it's World Environment Day. A lot of campaigners are talking about air pollution, which is something we've talked about on the podcast before and making that a focus for World Environment Day. And then in my head, I was joining that up to when Trump uh, agreed to really go hard against Assad when he saw that children had been victims of chemical Mm. warfare. And I'm thinking, how can we link up kids suffering with air pollution with changing Trump's mind on something? Well, I mean, it is linked to child development. Child development is sometimes stunted by air pollution. And now I saw a crazy figure this morning. Nine out of 10 people experience air pollution every single day. Oh, yeah. In the so. world. And that's that's crazy. And, and that must, yeah. So I think you can definitely show that some children have real respiratory problems as a result of air pollution. Yeah, so he just needs to find some a child from the US maybe and be presented with the outcome. Mm-hmm. 
One of his grandchildrens. Uh, I bet one of them's going to get asthma. Then we need to link that back. Um, mm. I'm not wishing that on anyone. I want to be clear about that. It's more reacting to reality. Now, we have just learnt that the Danish government is likely to change. The current Liberal Prime Minister, he's one of the more conservative Liberals, he's conceded that he lost an election this week, and it's now almost certain that a new left-wing government will come in, led by the Social Democrats, the successor to your boss, a woman called Meta Friedrichsen, and she's basically known for taking the party to the left, but being very hardline on immigration. So she has supported things like deporting unsuccessful asylum seekers, forcing them to work 37 hours a week if they are accepted uh, into Denmark in exchange for benefits, uh, supporting a burqa ban in public, for example. So it is a very interesting mix where she's gone out and said, unregulated globalization hurts working class people the most. And if we want there to be any immigration at all, we've got to get tougher. And it looks like it's worked in the electoral sense. Yeah, I think that's the sad thing for me, is that this is evidence that you can undercut the right by going hard on immigration. And almost all parties in Denmark are anti-migrant in some way, shape or form. So you have to go harder than even the right to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good that they have a more liberal government back, but I think it does give ammunition to people who believe that the left is for Europeans. Yeah, I want to raise this idea as well that I have certainly experienced and been told about even by Danes themselves, which is this prevalent superiority complex that a lot of Danes have, where they have built a very functional welfare system but it was built on the back of a fairly homogenous society. And a lot of people interpret the creation of a multicultural society and recent increases in immigration as essentially a big threat to this welfare system that they built. And so they push against it, and effectively they say, you couldn't possibly sustain this welfare society, which was better than what everyone else around us created, and the expression of it is basically anti-immigration or racism. Have you got any wins or fails from the week. We've got the four big pro-EU parties are now trying to negotiate to come up with some, effectively, they're trying to say, here's your program, European Commission, which I find interesting. And it's all the kind of acting leaders of the parties. You know, a couple of them, like Manfred Weber, bizarrely, has been reconfirmed as a leader of the (laughs) European People's Party. That really, like, made me laugh because they tried to make it into a moment. And I just was reading through my Twitter and it was like, Manfred Weber, head of, we've just announced this thing by all of the MEPs who've been re-elected. And I was thinking, this isn't news, guys. Yeah, like, you believe he's going to become commission president so much that you've reappointed him to his old job. I mean, like, it kind of says... Basically, he's not going to get the main prize, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah, I think it was to try and make a little bit of a a splash again in the media around the Spitz and Canada. But it was it was that was funny. I just. Oh, yeah, I'll be all contrarian. Actually, I'm going to go down this road of Parliament being a bit of a kangaroo court, which was an accusation Nigel Farage threw at them this week, where he has gifts of about 500,000 euros that he didn't disclose that were reported with documents by Channel 4 News in the UK. And a parliament committee summons Tim to appear before them and, and threaten to like withdraw his access to parliament if he didn't appear before them. And I'm like, okay, like Nigel Farage has a lot of questions to answer, but who the hell are you to be inviting him to parliament? Parliament is not in session. There are no MEPs at the moment. 
they're only getting confirmed this month, they're only reconvening in July, and then you've got leaders of party groups acting as if they're going to issue a policy program to the commission. You've got committees summonsing other MEPs to appear before them when when basically nothing is formal. I mean, that is a bit of a kangaroo court, in my view. Mm, that's interesting perspective. I mean, all this would be fine if you were doing it in July and the whole new class was in place, but... We know that only 280 of the 751 are coming back. So, you know, it's kind of like, what happens to the new two-thirds of people? When do they get a say in whether this is the way they want to move forward? Yeah, I mean, if it's still the leaders of the group, I mean, they are the leaders of the group now. Well, so yeah, but is Guy Verhofstadt still going to be the leader in a month? I know, but if everybody's agreed to it, then it's fine. We don't, we don't know what the process behind it was. And yes. I'm sure everybody was like, yes, please summons Nigel Farage, please, <laughs> uh, to explain himself. Yeah, maybe the- I'm debating a theory here. I'm sure everyone did want Nigel Farage to come along. But, yeah, I think, no. I think it's true. But it's interesting as well that this is what the caretakers of the parliament are trying to do, because the council is also trying to do something similar with their five-year kind of plan, right? I was talking recently at a meeting and we had noticed that now the commission is much more politicised than it used to be Mm -hmm. and everybody's trying to kind of like guide the commission and also the commission is much more sensitive to member states and less so the European Parliament. So I think that will be really interesting in the next commission to see how much they allow the other two institutions to set the agenda because it's happening more and more. There's going to be a five-year plan from the council and then we're also seeing that from the European Parliament. Well, then we're really headed towards a technocratic commission presidency, I would say then, that this is a pushback against the Selmayr-Juncker vision of a political commission because I really feel like the national leaders now have a choice. Are you going to basically appoint one of your own because it doesn't seem like one of the official Spitzen candidates could get the job? Or do they go for someone who is a really good manager, someone who's actually managed a large institution before? And I can only think of two people who've done that, and that's Kristalina Gorgieva, who is the CEO of the World Bank, and Christine Lagarde, who effectively has the same job at the International Monetary Fund. You have other leaders who've sort of managed governments, but you know, like there's not really anyone else out there that's managed 35,000 people before and, and given mm. them strategic direction and leadership. But I think that it is also that Juncker was more attuned and went around to people more and I kind of felt the lay of the land. So maybe it doesn't necessarily mean need to be a technocrat, but it needs to be someone who realizes the only way I can get things done is if I align these member states, you know, mm. so it's more political but it's a little bit more answering to the member states in a way Mm. that they didn't seem to do in the past. I would say that whatever happens, the commission should pick the really big fights and put all its effort into winning them. You know, basically it should do less, but it should just not lose sight of big picture issues. Sometimes you have to do all the little things in order to have the big thing and to make sure that you're hitting all of the marks. And I noticed that in a few different dossiers and policies that I work on where they've just been totally deprioritized, but that doesn't mean they don't contribute to the whole. I think we have to look Does at Does it mean they don't happen or it means they just happen in the corner and no one's they've paying just, a lot of attention? No, they just don't happen at all now. Hmm. And that was that was as a result of the Juncker, you know... Um, well, that's also sim- not good because then a lot of people are being paid a lot of money to not deliver things. So that's a bad outcome. Yeah, and well, I mean, they were told, work on less things. We want to cut down what we're doing. But sometimes, you know, I mean, you would never say that to a government who has to manage the whole 
infrastructure of its, its country and the services and everything, you never be like, oh, actually, we're not going to pay attention to education anymore. It's Less all about health. Collection. Less garbage <laughs> collection this year, please. It's all about health. No, but it, it's true. If we silo things like that and we only focus on priorities, like now it's migration, security, and I hope climate change is coming back on the agenda. But then... You know, all of those things are linked to various different things that most of the commissioners do. So I think it's about doing things better rather than just doing less, which doesn't mean the same thing. There we are. That's exactly what we did on the podcast today. We could have done less because there were two of us. Instead, we went four minutes over. So we did it better. There we are, folks. Uh, Until next week, thank you for listening to EU Confidential. As always, podcasting is a team effort. So thank you to Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray for making this episode possible. And if you haven't signed up for the podcast, do it. We'll send it to you automatically each week. Go to politico.eu forward slash registration or click subscribe wherever you found the podcast online. Thanks, guys. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.